Well, good morning to you all. It's wonderful to see you. We continue today our epiphany journey dealing with these themes. You may have started to pick up on some common themes over the past few weeks. Again, today we have these themes of light and darkness. And what does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world, the light that shines into the darkness, really the heart of this epiphany season. And we will focus now, last week we were in John, we shift over now to the early chapters of Matthew. And what we see is really the answer to that question, even here in the very beginning, these early passages of Jesus' ministry as he first calls his disciples. And so I'm just going to walk through this and highlight a few things. If you'd like to keep your Bible out, it could be helpful. We're in Matthew chapter 4, and as we read this, one of the first things that stands out to me that I want us to sit with for a little bit is just the simple fact that Jesus here goes to those who've been marginalized and those who've been excluded begins what will become a pattern, a habit of his ministry. Jesus goes to people on the fringe, people who live on the margins. And that's where he begins his ministry. That's where he begins to call people to himself. If you look at verse 13, it says, these were people who dwelt at Capernaum, which is by the sea. Uh, My wife and I were in Israel last fall and were able to go to Capernaum. It is a beautiful place. It is not hard to imagine why people would want to live here. And yet that's not noted to let us know that Jesus began his ministry with a holiday by the sea. He doesn't kick it off with a few days at a beach resort. That's not the point of this at all. What you actually see is more of what we saw in the first reading, which is quoted again in Matthew Where Isaiah says it's the land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan. And then here's the key, Galilee of the Gentiles. We're so familiar with passages like this, with this actual passage, that you may hear that and just brush right over it and keep going. But there's actually something significant to that, that phrase, Galilee of the Gentiles. What that means is that this is a part of the country that is filled with non-Jews, with Gentiles. It's a mixed population. And so Jesus is beginning his ministry outside of the core of the Jewish people, outside of the people who were the outstanding, top-of-their-class Jewish citizens. No, this is a mixed area. People uh, who were of Greek descent living here along with Jews. And so what you have is people who, by the pure Jews, you would say, would have wanted nothing to do with the Greeks, but also very little to do with the Jews in that area. Because the Jews likely, almost unquestionably, would have had certain Greek habits, Greek customs that had rubbed off on them, that they absorbed simply by being in this part of the country. These are the people You could say the reason we we think of it this way, these are the people, according to Isaiah, who sat in darkness. That this would have been seen by the elite ruling class as the region and the shadow of death. And I think it's so easy to miss that. But if we don't pick up on that right here at the beginning, it will be very hard for us to understand really the whole thrust of what we just read. Because what we see here is that the light of Christ shines on people that according to every social norm, every expectation of that day would have had zero expectation that light would shine on them. These are not the people counting on or banking on the light shining on them. If there's a pecking order to where light shines, they are way down on the list. And yet this is where Jesus' ministry begins. And so surely what unspeakable joy these people would have known. Incredible joy to have Jesus draw near to them and say, come, follow me. Join me in this great work, this great mission. Incredible joy. 
People who would have never expected it, yet this is where they find themselves. They are fully aware of their brokenness, their undesirability, we could say, and yet the light shines on them. And as I think on that, I just think how hard it is, if I'm honest, to relate to them. How hard it is, frankly, for me to know what that must have felt like. And I think that's true for most of us in this room. If we are brutally honest, it is hard for us to self-identify as the people who dwell in great darkness. By most American standards, certainly by global standards, you and I are closer to the elite ruling class than we are to the people who dwell in great darkness. And I think I've come to realize this in my life over the last few years more and more. Because I grew up in a way I never would have as a child self-identified as uh, elite in any way or ruling class. Grew up very middle class in North Cobb County with a family that lived by a month-to-month budget. My mother spent hours cutting coupons like nothing screams. You remember that, cutting coupons? Nothing screams we are elite ruling class. And yet the longer I live, the more I realize there are just default assumptions that I make about the world and my place in it. As a white American who has multiple degrees, and the only way I can make those assumptions is because they come from a place of privilege. And we have to begin to realize that. Because if we don't, we will never actually understand texts like Matthew chapter 4. Because I have spent most of my life, socially, economically, and spiritually, not knowing what it feels like or what it means to be someone in darkness. And yet then how can we rejoice and sing songs and pray about people on whom the light has shined? I think if I were to say anything else, it would be deeply insincere. And you would see right through it for me to pretend otherwise. And I think if you are brutally honest, there are many of those assumptions that you make as well. And so we have to just call those out, kind of set that here and say, what do we do with this? How how do we acknowledge that and then live into a text like this as a result? Because here's the thing I've realized as well over the last few years. If I don't address those parts of my life, there are invitations the Lord gives to me as a disciple that I will never actually be able to take parts of my life as a disciple that he will invite me to join him in that I can't actually go into. I won't actually follow him there because I can't acknowledge the things that stand between me and that invitation that he has before us. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, once in a book said, if you were looking in the world for Christians, where would you go to find them? And he said, it should be that the place you find Christians are in places of chaos. That's his phrase. You should find Christians in places of chaos. He says, you might expect to find a Christian near to those places where humanity is most at risk, where humanity is most disordered, most disfigured, and needy. And I think if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, my heart grieves when I read passages like that because I can try and intellectually get myself there at one level, but if I'm brutally honest, I avoid chaos at all costs. There's nothing about my life where I invite chaos and disorder in because I want it to be orderly. I want it to be predictable. I want it to be comfortable. And I think in some way, at some level, you can relate to that. And so what does it mean for us to be people, Christians, who are expected to be in places of chaos? If you hang around Trinity at all, you'll hear us sometimes talk about and use this phrase where we long to be people of substance. You've likely heard that phrase All of our congregations, we use that in one way or another. We kind of have borrowed that unapologetically from C.S. Lewis in what I think is one of his greatest works, a small book called The Great Divorce, 
where he talks about these ghostly figures who find their way to heaven, to God's kingdom. And they're so insubstantial that the blades of grass in God's kingdom hurt them. They hurt their feet. And so the prayer is to be the kinds of people who are so substantial that you can bend the blades of grass in God's kingdom. And part of what that means to be a person of substance, is that you and I are so rooted in the love of God, so rooted in the fact that light shines into our lives and our families and our hearts, that we are actually emboldened and set free to go into really dark, chaotic places and still be people of substance in those places. Years ago, I used an example like this. And I'll use it again because I think it's appropriate. When we go to the beach in the summer, my children love to go crabbing, beach crabbing. You ever done this where you let the sun go down and you take a bucket and a flashlight and hope for the best and you go out and you, you try and find crabs and, and my kids I think are in equal measure fascinated and terrified by these creatures because on the one hand they, they want to see them and, and play with them and kind of have them up close and yet they're these like prehistoric monsters that they just also want, want to keep at a safe distance so their, their ideal scenario is to have more adults than there are children have flashlights and you kind of spot a crab 30 feet away and an adult shines the light on it and then the adult goes and gets the crab puts it in the bucket and brings it back and that's like a safe way to do it what's the worst thing that could happen is my children shine a light down at their feet and there's crabs right there at their feet because all of a sudden their their safety net their their kind of distance from chaos is all of a sudden compromised And it terrifies them and they don't know what to do. And so they panic and they lose their minds. I would not say they are people of substance in that moment. And we laugh about that. It's a very childlike thing to do. And yet we do this as adults. We do versions of this in our own lives where we like to keep things orderly. And so if it's chaotic, if it in some way impinges upon our sense of stability, our sense of predictability, we want to keep it at arm's length where we can manage it and control it. We would hate to actually be immersed in that place. And yet what if that is exactly, exactly what Jesus is inviting his disciples to do? This is a new season for us on the north side. I see so many new faces, people I don't know. Please come say hello. I'd love to meet you. And yet I'm mindful as we begin a new season in a new location with new people exploring this community. Um, we find ourselves here in a new space. And if you were with us at Skyland, you've probably spent a few weeks kind of like sizing this space up. Like uh, we've traded a place that feels very churchy to a place with floor-to-ceiling dry erase walls. Like it's a different feel. Far more hospitable, I would say. But it's it's kind of, we're, we're feeling this out. Um, and it's a different feel. And yet at both of those locations, no one I think would characterize this as a place of chaos. <laughs> both are very stable places. We are in the heart of Perimeter Mall. Like this is about us, unless you go into them all. Uh, otherwise, fairly unchaotic. Like this is a pretty safe, stable part of the city. And yes, I, as I think about that, at one level, that's really nice and, and we can celebrate that. Yet the risk there, the danger there is we say, isn't this a lovely place for us to gather and have a bagel and have a cup of coffee and get on with my morning? And we settle in and root ourselves into a status quo that is incredibly comfortable. And all we really then exist for is for a bit of community, to sing a few songs, hear a uplifting message, hopefully, and then we get on about our lives. And yet, I, I just have to be honest with you. The last few weeks, the Holy Spirit has moved my heart to say that is not why we exist, primarily. 
We do not exist simply to be a comfortable people addicted to our safety and just settling into a nice, comfortable, cozy space. That is not the mission of the church. If you read the book of Acts, in the early days of the Christian church, there were three things that the church did. Worship, evangelism, and charity. Three things that define the Christian church. Worship of Almighty God, evangelism, having a mind and an eye and a heart towards the outsider, towards those who are not in this room. And charity, genuine love and compassion for those who are in need. And the church may be many more things than that, but it can never be less than that. I don't fully yet know, frankly, what that looks like for us, what it means for us to fully live into all three of those. But if we don't, we will fail in our mission as a church. If that moves you in any way, sincerely, come talk to me. And maybe we could figure this out together. Because I don't claim to have answers to all of this. But it's something that we cannot ignore and still say we are being the church on mission here in North Atlanta. We are not simply called to be comfortable people. Jesus calls us to repent. That's the heart of this text. It's a heavy text. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think we have to be willing to acknowledge, I have to be willing to acknowledge, I need to repent of my own addiction to safety and comfort and security. N.T. Wright often says, repentance is not simply feeling sorry about your sins. It's certainly a part of it. But full repentance is not just feeling bad about something. Repentance is to, to identify something that needs to change and then step into that, live into it in such a way that you begin to turn around and live differently as a result. Earlier this week, I was reading Second Corinthians, or Second Chronicles, excuse me. And in Second Chronicles chapter 34, you read the story of Josiah's reign. You can go and read it this week. It's really interesting because Second Chronicles is this book of pendulum swings where in the Old Testament, you see these kings where on the one hand, they're incredibly wicked and evil, bring in all sorts of idolatrous worship. They set up uh, idols and, and temples to these gods. And then their son will come to power and that son will uh, purge everything and get rid of all the idolatrous worship. And then it goes right back again the other way. They just go back and forth like they can't make up their minds. And what's fascinating about Josiah is Josiah is pointed out for not only purging idolatrous worship, but then he spends just as much time rebuilding and preparing to rebuild the temple. And I think it's this beautiful picture of repentance where he purges that which is broken. It says he literally grinds the idols into powder. He just grind, destroys idolatry. But then he says he, he devotes his time and calls the people together to rebuild the temple. And I think that's what we have to do as God's people. We can sit here and repent and say, yes, we can't just settle into our comfort. But then what do we do about it? What does it mean to actually then live into a new way of being, a new way of life? I think that is what we are invited into because if I repent and say, I'm really sad about how much I love my comfort, that doesn't actually heal me from that addiction, does it? I still can be very set in my way, set in that comfortable space. If I go get my oil changed, I hate to get my oil changed because I have an older car, which means I don't just get an oil change. They come, you know, like they come and you're just waiting on it. Um, here's the long list of all the things you also need for this car to be safe and for you not to, you know, harm your children while you drive. <laughs> they guilt you into it. And I don't know enough about cars to know whether they're lying through their teeth or whether I actually am endangering my children. And so uh, what I usually do is say thank you and I put it in the glove box and hope it goes away. Just ignore it and that sound will just heal itself magically, right? Uh, 
In some ways, I'm worse off because before I was blissfully ignorant. And now I actually know what's wrong with my car. And yet I still choose to do nothing about it. Knowledge in and of itself does not fix the problem. Repentance is knowledge also met with a change of being, a change of direction, a new way of living. And so we have to call this out and then do something about it. A few years ago, several years ago now, at a church I served in another state, we had a weekend conference with a a man named Gary Haugen. Gary founded a nonprofit called the International Justice Mission, which exists to end slavery around the world. And I'll never forget what he said when he came to visit. He he came and taught, and uh, there were no niceties, no funny jokes, no stories about his wife and kids. He just got up and just launches right into what he has to say. And the whole room kind of went from the, the small talk and the chatter you have as a room's beginning to this, like, deathly silence. Because what he said is he said, the American church is addicted to safety. And he said, as long as we're addicted to safety, we'll never live in such a way that God has to show up. And he said, what would it mean if we as the church actually live in such a way that if the Holy Spirit is not leading and guiding and directing this thing we're doing, we are in big trouble. And it just shook me to the core because we are. We are addicted to safety and to comfort. And what that does is it shuts us down. It makes us small people who don't reach out and go into dark and scary places because we're afraid we might be hurt, which means we are not actually so deeply filled with the light of Christ that we have the courage to follow him into the places he wants us to be. It's one of the reasons I've tried and encouraged us as a plant over the last year to prioritize prayer because prayer opens us up to others and to the work of God in the world around us. If you were here back in the fall, we did a 40-day prayer project where we said, what would it be for us to pray every day, morning and evening as a community? It's one of the reasons we every Sunday do the prayers of the people. That may be a part of the service where you kind of start looking at your watch and check your Twitter and say, you know, let's get on with this. Um, It is a powerful, significant moment. And the reason it's the same every week is because we have the same invitation from the Lord every week to lift up the world and the concerns of the world as his people. It is a holy invitation. And if you are at a place where you've been around long enough that it's starting to feel dull and mundane, then there is an invitation to you that this might actually be a place where you can see some real growth and breakthrough in your spiritual life. Because this might be the place where you can press in past some just emotional high and say, what if I actually, even when I'm wrestling with and not wanting to be in this place, say, Lord, I choose to be a person of prayer and say, I want to turn away from simply my own concerns and lift up this community, lift up the leaders of our church, lift up the world with a heart turned towards you in prayer. So don't miss that opportunity. Prayer opens us to the life of God and it makes us bold. It makes us people who move out of these safe and comfortable places. Look at what the Lord calls his disciples into. Today's reading, we see the calling of the first disciples. What does he say in verse 19 to the fishermen living, as we've said, in the Galilee of the Gentiles? Does he say, follow me and I'll restore you to the top of the pecking order? Follow me and I'll make you the best fishermen in the region. Follow me and you will have every financial need met. You will be living your best life now. No. He says, follow me and I will turn you outwards. 
You will fish for people. You will live a life for the good of others. And all but one of those apostles that he called died a martyr's death. And only St. John was not martyred, and yet he died an old man in isolation, imprisoned, in exile because of his faith. Peter and Andrew, both mentioned here, were both crucified like their Lord Jesus. Did they have a clue that this is what they were saying yes to? There's no way. There's no way they did. And yet, they live lives in such a way that by the end of it, they count it worthy to be honored to die a martyr's death. You read in the second century of the church, you read about St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius went to Rome to face a martyr's death, and he pleaded with the other church leaders to not interfere with his martyrdom because he said, what an honor it is to give my life in such a way for the Lord. He said, don't do anything to stop this. This is my glory as a follower of Jesus. What would it be like to have that kind of faith, to see Jesus? Because this is where it begins. It begins with seeing Jesus. And something about the person of Jesus awakens this in them and says, whatever it is, whatever you're inviting me into, I will say yes and I want to follow because I see you. I behold you in your beauty and your glory as you are. And I think when we see Jesus as he is, we begin to be set free, set free from our safety, set free from our comfort, set free from our inward curve where we only love and care about ourselves. We're made bold and courageous people. Close with this. William Temple uh, famously years ago said that the church is the only society on earth that exists for people who are not yet its members. And the only way that can be true of you and me is if we have seen the beauty of Jesus, behold him as he is, and are so filled with his light that we long for others to know the same life. We long for it to be so true that we move out of safe and comfortable spaces and go into vulnerable space, trusting that the Lord is already there, that that's actually where we go to find him. If you wonder, where can I find Jesus? Where did he spend his time? It was not with the elite powerful ruling class. It was with the poor and the outcasts, the lepers and the prostitutes. That's not just metaphorical. If we don't find a way to go into those places, we will not find Jesus in our own day. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.